Boulevard, there is too much song and dance going on in this room right now. <laughs> nice job, Chamberlain. Y'all may not know this. Chamberlain's the uh, worship minister over at the West Campus, and he and Sean swapped up today. I, I think I mentioned this. I don't remember. It might be a year or so ago, but it's just kind of fun to do. So if you've ever performed at Carnegie Hall in Manhattan, New York City, please stand right now. See? <laughs> wow. You know what? You guys are singing even better than you were before the pandemic. I think like you're just like a whole year of pent up, I got to praise is, is pouring out of you. Yeah. So it's not over yet. I know that. And I'm going to say a few things. I don't want you to think that I think it's over. It's not over. In fact, uh, even recently, somebody that we care about, Julie and I, did passed away from the virus. But I do think it's just be a good time to pause and say, you know, um, we've had a whole lot of people who've risen to the occasion around the world, but in North America, here in Rutherford County and Murfreesboro. And maybe it'd be a good time to say a special thanks to the medical providers, healthcare providers, doctors and nurses, administrators, floor managers who have demonstrated that even though humanity fell at the Garden of Eden, there are an awful lot of good people still in this world. And I just give you a chance to say thank you to them. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's one thing to, to live with risk. It's another thing to put your life and the life of your family members at risk in the middle of a pandemic. And... Um, Wow, we've just got some good people. There are a lot of good people in this world, aren't there? So Abraham Lincoln is reported once to have asked an audience this question. How many legs does a dog have if you count the tail as a leg? And the audience dutifully said, five. And Lincoln said, not so. Just because you call the tail a leg doesn't make it a leg. <laughs> the truth is stubborn. Truth is stubborn. It's real, it's unflinching, and it's everywhere truth is. But so is deceit. And probably the greatest threat that most of us face is not the bald lie, but instead the half-truth, the myth, the persistent myth that we tell ourselves when our desires are at risk because we craft for ourselves myths designed to resolve unmeted desires. And don't underestimate the power of our desires. When our desires are at stake, we will tell ourselves almost any story imaginable in order to have those desires satiated. I think that in Deuteronomy 18, God is dealing with this problem of the persistence of myths. The Israelites are about to cross into the land of Canaan. Don't assume that Canaanites, because they didn't have the one true God, weren't interested in revelation. They were. They were just interested in the wrong revelation. They were aiming for myths versus truth. 
And I actually think that that's been the persistent problem of all of humanity. The devil doesn't come to us, after all, wearing a red outfit, carrying a trident with horns on his head and blowing fire. He comes to us, as the Apostle Paul says, what? Masquerading as an angel of light. That he comes to us aware of what we want and offering us half-truths, myths, stories that he hopes will persuade us to be unfaithful to the God to whom we swore our allegiance. So as the Israelites were crossing into the land of Canaan, Moses has to deal with the problem of mythology, myths. That is believing stories that are made up in order to satisfy desires when at the end of the day, only God can meet those desires. I wanna read, it's a short text, uh, chapter 18, beginning at, uh, we'll start at verse nine. I just want to make sure we start out by reminding ourselves that truth matters. There is a stubbornness to truth. There's a clarity to truth. There's a, a brilliance to truth. There's a power to truth, but only if you believe it. It matters. Every false map leads to a shipwreck. And so it really matters that we believe the truth. Now, here's how Moses puts it. We'll start at verse 9, Deuteronomy chapter 18. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not learn to imitate the detestable ways of the nations there. Let no one be found among you who sacrifices their son or daughter in the fire, who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft, or casts spells, or who is a medium or spiritist, or who consults the dead. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord. Because of these same detestable practices, the Lord your God will drive out those nations before you. You must be blameless before the Lord your God. The nations you will dispossess, listen to those who practice sorcery and divination. But as for you, the Lord your God has not permitted you to do so. Just pause to say that in the ancient world, but really still in the modern world, just maybe a little less visible, people would consult the will of God on all major decisions. In the world of Canaan, they would do it by sometimes reading liver. There was actually a, a, a whole cottage industry where you would uh, sacrifice an animal, and they would look for the spots on the animal's liver, and someone would interpret your future based on how the spots were arranged on an animal's liver. There were paid professionals who would watch the pattern of birds flying through the sky, and they would give you some kind of prediction based on how birds flew, what kind of pattern they exhibited. There were those who would watch the planets, how the planets lined up. In fact, the Greek word uh, planes is the word planet, and it means to deceive because oftentimes the planets were very deceptive in how they moved according to the, those who practiced divination and sorcery. Uh, there were individuals who would interpret dreams or cast spells. And the Canaanites routinely went to these folks in order to get answers to their most urgent questions. Now, I'm going to make the argument that most of us don't think that way in the 21st century, but we still have our version of it. We still live by some kind of a myth. I'm going to illustrate it in a moment, but I want to make sure you understand that what God has to say about it is simple. Either you're going to get your truth from me or you're going to follow a lie. Man, we need to hear that message over and over again. If you're going to get your truth from me or you're just going to follow a lie. And I just want to remind you again, most lives are carefully constructed to resonate with your heart. The reason lies work is because they sound so good. They make so much sense. That's why they work. Let's keep reading. So verse uh, 15, 
All three sections, by the way, that we're going to cover, which are just the end of this chapter, have to do with how you come to know the will of God. So, verse 15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. For this is what you asked of the Lord your God at Horeb. That's a reference to Mount Sinai. In fact, let me tell you the story just quickly. So back in Exodus 20, when God reveals himself and gives the Ten Commandments to Israel and also what's called the Book of the Covenant, which starts shortly after chapter 20, God appears on the mountain in the form of a billow of smoke, peals of lightning, you know, rumbling thunder coming down, and it scared everybody. It was like, you know, it was scaring the kids. And so they said to Moses, hey, why don't you just go up there and get the will of God and bring it down to us? Because it's really scary to be here. And God said to Moses, that's a good idea. Why don't you do that? By the way, I just, I just make this observation. Uh, God works through prophets. And a lot of us would love it if God, you know, we, we, at least we say we would love it, if God would just reveal himself to us. You can't handle that. You would not be able to handle God revealing himself directly to you. That's why he works through prophets. If you think that you're holy enough to stand before a holy God who rumbles forth in the thunder and peals of lightning and billows of smoke, who is so holy that you can't touch him, if you think that you could handle an immediate revelation from that God, you probably have a really high view of yourself. And so what the Israelites said to Moses is, will you just go get the word and bring it down to us? And if you recall, Moses went up there, and when he came back down, his face was glowing in the dark. He had to put a veil over his face because nobody could look at him. His face was shining so bright. So that's what he's making reference to. Uh, the Lord says to Moses, I'm going to appoint a successor to you, just like they asked me to do when we were back at Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai. When you said, let us not hear the voice of the Lord our God, nor see this great fire anymore, or we will die. The Lord said to me, what they say is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites. I will put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command them. I myself will call to account anyone who does not listen to my words uh, that the prophet speaks in my name. So the simplest level, all that's being said here is God is telling Moses, we're going to appoint a successor for you. And by the way, you know who that is already. Joshua. God, so remember, Moses is preaching his last sermon in Deuteronomy. That's all it is. Deuteronomy is just three sermons and a song. That's, doesn't that sound cool? Three sermons and a song. He, three sermons and a song and then a set of blessings and then Moses dies. That's the book of Deuteronomy. So as Moses is approaching, we're, we're past the halfway point now in Deuteronomy. As Moses is approaching his death, he says, God's going to give a successor. When he does, do what he says. We know that's Joshua. But there's something prophetic, something even bigger at work, something metaphorical, if you will, in this text, which is that God is pointing to a bigger principle, not just Joshua, something bigger. So the Jews, shortly after this was written, began to think that God's going to send, maybe we can call it an eschatological or a, uh, an apocalyptic prophet. There's going to be some great arrival before the last day when God utterly reveals himself. That's why in Jesus's day, when Jesus comes along, they start asking this question. First, this is a question asked to John the Baptist. The Pharisees look at John the Baptist and say, hey, are you Elijah? And he says, uh, no. And then they said, are you the prophet? They're talking about this text because they were expecting some like apocalyptic prophet to show up. And John says, no, it's not me. Then a little bit later, when Jesus comes along, they say, oh, this is the prophet. They're talking about this text. There was an expectation that God would raise up not just one more prophet, but the prophet. 
And when Jesus speaks to the Pharisees a little bit later in John's gospel, he says, if you believe Moses, you would believe me because I'm the one Moses wrote about. And that's not a coincidence because Jesus, the word Jesus, comes to us from the Greek term Jesus. In Hispanic, what is it? Jesus. And Jesus in Greek is only a transliteration of the Old Testament word Joshua. In other words, Joshua and Jesus are the same name. That's not a coincidence. Jesus is named after the prophetic successor to Moses. So in the text, what we're being told is when God appoints a prophet, you listen to him. And it is important to remember, again, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Paul says in Ephesians 2.20, that God generally speaks through mediation. God speaks to us through prophets. And I just want to remind you one more time, we wouldn't be able to handle much more than that. The reason God doesn't appear to you right now is because you couldn't handle it. We just couldn't handle it. When the Israelites saw God on the mountain, they ran. They were terrified. Like, don't underestimate who this God is. We sing these songs of praise, and it's, still, it's filled with joy and delight. But don't underestimate this God. He has to speak to us through prophets because we couldn't handle what it would be like to face him off. So, he wraps it up. Now, a question should arise, which is, well, how will we know which prophet's the right one? And God answers that. He gives partial answer here because there are actually more answers in Scripture. But a prophet who presumes to speak in my name, anything I have not commanded, or a prophet who speaks in the name of any other God is to be put to death. Now, you may say to yourselves, how can we know when a message has not been spoken by the Lord? If what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that's a message the Lord has not spoken. That prophet has spoken presumptuously, so do not be alarmed. And that's it. That's our reading. Thus spoke the Word of God. Now, there are all sorts of applications we can make here. One of them that I really would like to make, but I think I've made it enough, or maybe I should say I've made this one to the point that I haven't made some others that I should make, is simply this. We still have a lot of false prophets today. So I have made the argument, now probably extensively enough that most of you prefer not to hear it again, that progressive Christianity is a form of false prophecy. You can read about it in 2 Peter chapter 2 because 2 Peter chapter 2 actually describes what it looks like and it's a chilling description. If we were to scan 2 Peter 2, which we're not going to take the time to do, we would discover that first of all, it comes in secretly. A couple of years ago, I read the autobiography of Thomas Oden, who is one of the most influential English-speaking theologians of the 20th century, a guy I wish I had met. I wish I had known Dr. Oden. He taught at, he taught at half the universities in the West. Uh, everything from Yale. He had a private communion with the Pope. I mean, this uh, how big this guy was. The first 40 years of Odin's life, he was a progressive Christian. The last 40 years of his life, he became a biblical Christian. In fact, he's, we, he remarked in his autobiography, he said, he said, on my tombstone, on my tombstone, what I hope is that someone writes, here lies Thomas Odin, who never had an original thought. <laughs> what he was trying to say is, I just want to do what the Bible says. I don't want to think originally. I want to I obey. I, like, I'm not getting paid to be creative. I'm getting paid to obey. But he makes this remark in his book. He says, back when I was a progressive Christian, I used to say the words of the Bible, but I didn't mean them. It was always a mental game for me. I would talk about the resurrection, but I didn't believe it. I would talk about inspiration, but I didn't mean it. In a lot of ways, that's what Peter is telling us will be the mark of a false teacher. They'll use the right language, 
but they'll twist it. They don't mean it. He goes on, Peter does, in 2 Peter 2, he says, you'll know that because they always go to sex before it's over with. And I just want to say something about it. First of all, first thing I want to say is you're, you don't want to hear about it and I don't want to talk about it, not in public. But I want to make sure you know, it wasn't us Christians who made it a big deal in America. I mean, it's the secularists who made it a big deal. They keep making it a big deal. They keep forcing us to argue over it, which makes it appear that sex is the biggest doctrine in the Christian faith. It's not. It's just a point where we're being attacked, so we have to talk about it a lot. But Peter says one of the marks of a false teacher is before it's over, they're going to get to sexual immorality. It always happens. And when you watch, it's true. They always end up saying, maybe the Bible's not right about this. Maybe it's wrong about that. Peter goes on. He says, you'll also notice that they're arrogant. Now, most Americans are smart enough not to be openly arrogant. It's a subtle form of arrogance. So even not long ago, I heard someone say, Paul didn't understand same-sex activity the same way we do. Now we understand better. And so now we can change the doctrine of Paul. Do you realize how arrogant that is? What an arrogant statement that is to think I actually know more about a biblical doctrine than an apostle who went to heaven and sat down with God and talked about it. There's a form of arrogance there that Peter describes as so brazen, he said, these guys would trounce angels if they could. I just want you to see that there is such a thing as false prophecy today, but that's actually not what I want to talk about. How about that? I talked about that and then said I wasn't going to talk about it. That's sly. Here's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about the false problems, the false teaching that I think is more common for most of us. This is the one we struggle with mostly. And I'm going to use an analogy, which is the analogy of Giardia, which is not to be compared to um, Giardelli, which is a very nice chocolate. They're two different things. So uh, Giardia... (laughs) I don't even know what I've said now. Giardia is a parasite. It's a, um, always a little protozoan. Each little tender Giardia is. And uh, you'll know you get Giardia because once they get inside of you, they do all kinds of explosive things. And it'll take you a few days to get over it. You get it through drinking contaminated water. So without going any further, there you go. Uh, This is what this little critter looks like, by the way. For years, we've understood that Giardia gives you terrible stomach cramps and diarrhea, and it'll, it'll ruin a camping trip. <laughs> we've, we've proven that through the years. But exactly how the Giardia does this has only recently been uncovered, and that is, well, here's what the Giardia does. This Giardia actually imitates a protein molecule that's on the lining of the cells in your intestine. He imitates it. He dresses up like a protein that's on the lining of the cells in your intestine. And he knocks on the cell's door and the cell looks out the door and says, yeah, that's one of our proteins. So he opens the door and the Giardia comes in and eats everything in the house. And then he has a bunch of babies and they start eating everything in the house and you explode. That's what happens. (laughs) My point is, if I have one, my point is that the Giardia imitates the natural processes of the body, and that's how he gains access. And so what I want to suggest is that a whole lot of the false prophecy that we believe, the false teaching we believe, the reason we believe it is because it imitates truth. 
It mimics truth. It's not truth, but it mimics truth. It deals with actual questions we really have. It resolves or seeks to resolve desires that we really have. Like, you're not going to believe a false teaching that doesn't solve any problems for you. The reason you believe it's because it solves a problem, or at least it feels like it does. And that's why it's so dangerous. That's what makes Giardia so dangerous, is it pretends to be a natural cell. But it's not. And when it gets in, it has a baby every nine hours. And all of its babies have babies every nine hours, which is why you're in trouble after a couple of days. Here's how Tim, Paul puts it in Timothy. He says there's going to be a time when people don't, they don't believe healthy doctrine. That's what the word sound means. Healthy, they won't believe healthy doctrine. Instead, he says they're going to find teachers who tell them what they want to hear. And he describes it as having itching ears. The reason people believe false teaching is because they already have itching ears. They're looking for something to solve problems. Now, the problems are legitimate, and it's good to look for the answer. Just look in the right place. I mean, stop looking in all the wrong places. So, what are the uh, false prophets that I want to deal with? Well, here we go. Four of them. Let me I'll just start here. And let me start by saying that, again, so life, the average minute of your life, you receive who knows how many data. You receive thousands, if not millions, of data impulses, you know, through your, your eyes or your ears. I mean, right now, think of how many waves are hitting your ears. And all of us have to make sense of all the data that comes into our head. We do that by creating a story. That's what all of us do. You've already created today's story. We arrange the material around a story. So we may have all sorts of words in our head, but we always put them in a story. What I want you to see is you want a story from God, a story that empowers you, not a story that destroys you. We're all building stories about our lives. I mean, think about marriage. You can have the exact same wife or the exact same husband for one person and their story is, I've got a great wife. No difference in who she is. The other guy's story is a terrible wife. It's all about the story you create around yourself. What I'm trying to help you to see is sometimes we're getting the wrong stories and they become prisons for us. Okay, here we go. The first one, your cell phone. You see, our cell phones often tell us all the wrong things about who we are and what we are to do. Now, I remember when the first smartphone came out. And you know, you don't even have to be old to remember that. Smartphones have not been with us that long. In fact, I can remember the first time I saw a smartphone thinking to myself, who would want one of those? Really, I thought that. Do you know that today there are more humans on planet Earth who own a smartphone than there are humans on planet Earth who have access to indoor plumbing. That's a true statement. More humans have access, they own a smartphone than they actually have access to indoor plumbing. That's how many people want one. Now, here's the problem with your smartphone. First of all, it's great. It gives you all this information. The problem with your smartphone is you've programmed it not to give you information. You've programmed it to give you formation. That's what you did. You, you programmed your smartphone to tell you what you want to believe what you've done. So all your social media accounts, they're just people telling you what you want to believe. Your news feed. So if you're on the left, you've got an app, MSNBC. 
And MSNBC, that app that you had, it never once told you that Donald Trump did a good thing. It just told you what you wanted to believe, which is he is pure evil, the devil incarnate. If you've got a Fox News app on your phone, you know what it's telling you? It doesn't matter what Joe Biden says. It doesn't matter what he does. That app is telling you he's a bad person. And guess who programmed the phone? You did. You programmed it to tell you what you want to believe. And it's not just our news. It's not just our social media. The whole thing is set up to affirm something inside of us. It's like the whole phone is designed to say, David, yes, you really are the center of the universe. That's what they do. They chirp every 12 seconds to tell me, yes, you're still the center of the universe. It's all okay. In fact, I used this illustration just at the last service. And two different people came up to me afterwards and said, you'll never guess what happened while you were preaching. Two different people got a text message from Apple, from iPhone, from whoever that is. The giant iPhone in the sky. This would make the Soviets proud. It came in, these text messages came in that said, you have used your screen 30 minutes less this week than you did last week. And we're okay with that? Like you actually are okay having your screen monitor how many times you've looked at it? Two different people came up and said that. What I'm suggesting is that what we've done in a lot of ways is we said to our cell phone, will you tell me that I matter? I was with a group not long ago, and one of the persons in the group was posting everything we were saying and doing on Facebook, which, by the way, mortifies me. But they're posting it, and after they would post it on Facebook, you know what they would do? They would look at somebody and say, hey, would you go on Facebook and like that for me? Will you like that for me? Okay, that's easy to make fun of, isn't it? And maybe it's not funny at the end of the day. Maybe what we're really saying is, I'm not sure that I matter. And I want you guys to know you do. And if you just need an $800 piece of technology to tell you that, God can tell you that a lot better. I mean, he really has a better answer for do you matter than Facebook does. Whatever technology you might be using to affirm that which you want to believe about yourself, you just need to know that most Facebook accounts are the least authentic accounts on the Internet. Like, they're not real. We're posting all this stuff about ourselves. It's not even real. Half of it's not even true. It's like, I don't want a picture of the Eiffel Tower. I want a picture of me standing in front of the Eiffel Tower. There's just, it's a desperate need. And what the Lord says is, I can beat that. My truth is better than that. So I'm going to move on to the next one. Before we do, I want you to know that it was none other than Abraham Lincoln who once remarked, don't believe everything you read on the internet. Just because there's a picture and a quote next to it. If he says it, it's got to be true. Here's a second false prophet I think we use, and it is our cable. So the entertainment media, I think, are open to at least two different criticisms. The first one is that the entertainment media desensitizes us to unholiness. I'm remembering what Psalm 119, I think it's verse 37, though I haven't looked it up, says, Lord, keep my eyes from anything that's unwholesome. That's the prayer of Psalm 119. Paul says in Ephesians, the fifth chapter, beginning at verse three, there should not even be a hint of sexual sin around you, nothing that even hints of it. So on the one hand, we can say about America's entertainment media, they desensitize us. The average American, given what's being done on television today, will see something like 53,000 sex acts by the time they're 40 years old. If you don't think that desensitizes you, then you're, you're not thinking very clearly. But I actually want to tell you there's, a, there's an even 
I think, more pernicious problem. That our entertainment, and by the way, I want to give credit to this one. Um, the, uh, so, I, in fact, I want to recommend a book. Trevin Wax, who spoke here at North Boulevard a couple of years ago, published a book called This Is Our Time, and he put me onto this illustration I want to use. So, Hollywood tells us a basic set of stories over and over and over. And then we end up living by those stories even though we don't know it. This is a pernicious problem. This is a real subtle problem. When Hollywood tells you what kind of story to measure your life against. So Wax mentioned several, three of them that I would mention are these. First of all, think about how many times Hollywood tells a story that's rags to riches. Rags to riches, rags to riches, over and over again, rags to riches. You know, at some all it's just the same story. They just switch out characters and context, you know. It's a cowboy in this movie, rags to riches. In the next one, it's a woman in China. In the next movie, it's a dog. I don't know what it is. I made all that up. But it's the same story, always rags to riches. What happens to you? What happens to your psyche when every story that you ever hear is a rags to riches story? What happens to you? You start measuring your life that way. And you start wondering, when is my riches coming? It's my turn for riches. And then you get mad at, you know, Jeff Bezos because his riches came and yours didn't. And you start getting envy. I mean, really, it creates massive cultural problems because we internalize this one storyline. It's not from God. That's not God's story. Jesus' story is the opposite. It is from riches of heaven to the rags of earth. It's the opposite story. But we internalize that narrative. Here's one. The greatest happiness is found in romantic love. Listen, that story is told over and over and over again in our media. Over and over again, we're told that finally the girl gets the guy or the guy gets the girl. They go have sex and live happily ever after. It's not from God. It's not true. It tastes good. It does. I mean, it fits just like Giardia does with every lining cell in your intestines. It fits. And it produces the same results. I'm going to think of a different illustration next time I preach this sermon too. <laughs> so I want you to know I'm aware of the need to do that. I'm just telling you it destroys our relationships because we're measuring every relationship by, hey, I'm in this thing. When's the romantic happiness come? I'm so, that's what I'm supposed to get out of this. I'm supposed to be getting this feeling. I'm not getting it. So you must not be a very good spouse. We got the whole story wrong. We let that story become the internal myth by which we live. That's now our divination, our sorcery. Here's the illustration that I got from Trevin. In 1990-something, eight, I think it was, this film came out. I think I saw this film, but I'm not sure. It's PG-13, but I don't remember. So in the story, there are these two kids, and they're modern, so they live contemporary with us, and they love watching old black-and-white television classics from the 1950s. In the course of watching one of these television programs, they magically get sucked into the world of a 1950s town called Pleasantville. And in the town of Pleasantville, everybody's black and white, by the way. So the film is actually black and white from that point forward. Everybody, well, not quite. Everybody's black and white and everybody lives this orderly life and nobody sins and it's perfect. You know how the old depictions of, uh, you know, whatever the flipper or whatever it was, those old television programs. Who was the kid uh, that never got in trouble? Leave it to Beaver. Yeah, it was Leave it to Beaver. So in the film, these two start to introduce into this old black and white world a little flare of rebellion. And next thing you know, people in the film are starting to have a little sex, and every time they do, they turn color. 
the main, one of the main protagonists, one of the women, she starts to have an affair with a guy that she's you know, been flirting with, but in the black and white world, that's all it was. Her husband is wounded by it, and he stays black and white, but she turns to full color. And by the end of the movie, finally, the whole world is in full color. Think of what's being said there, guys. That is the exact opposite of the story of the Garden of Eden. Because in the Garden of Eden, when we were innocent, when we were living wholesome lives, it was full color. It was when we sinned that the world became black and white. The whole story of Hollywood is this. You will find happiness when you throw those shackles off. That's when you'll find your happiness. Mulan is happiest when she what? Discovers that she can be her person. She can do it her way. No, she doesn't have to worry about any rules now. She's now liberated. I just want to make sure you know the reason that story appeals to us is because we have itching ears for it. We have itching ears for it. And it's destructive. It's not a true story. And, uh, and in fact, I just want to say that since I've been preaching Deuteronomy, not many people, and, you, and those of you might have said this, I know you meant it well, so don't, I'm not attacking anybody. I, I, don't, I don't want to do that. Maybe I used to want to. I don't anymore. I'm too old. But, you know, a, a few folks have said, hey, you know, I, I just hope we don't go into legalism. I get it. Some of us feel like we grew up in legalistic churches. But let me just remind you, do you see any legalism around here at all? Like, the battle over legalism is over, and we won. It's over. We, we don't have a single legalist around. Our problem now is not legalism, it's licentiousness. Our problem now is that we're doing the opposite of legalism. Now we want to accept everything. Now we're okay with sin. I just want to make sure you understand the fact that we became so okay with sin is because we were believing a story that's not true. God's commands are not a burden. They're only a burden if you don't love God. God's commands are for our well-being. The truth of God is beautiful. It's pure. It's enlightening. It's liberating. So, number three, your credit card. And now I have to kind of move quickly. You know what your credit card is telling you? Your credit card is telling you that you are one purchase away from final happiness. That's what it does. That's what marketers do. Like if you're a marketer, that's what you want. You want to create some sort of dissatisfaction in people, and then you want to say, my product will satisfy you. That's why it works. And so, so many of us, we believe that if we just shop a little bit more, if I just buy one more thing, I will finally find true contentment. Look, the reason we keep doing this is because we're itching. I just want you to know that won't scratch the itch. You know, Paul says at the end of Ephesians, I know what it's like to have plenty. I know what it's like to have nothing. He said this sitting in a jail. I have learned the secret of contentment. I can be content whatever the circumstances. It's not because Paul had a big credit card. It's because he understood that, that that whole story of shopping yourself to happiness is a fake story. You know what this is? This is a temple in North America. It's a temple. This is where a lot of us worship. That is, we just really think if I just get the latest phone, I'm going to be a happy person. So I'll never forget to the cell phone. The first smartphone I got was a Samsung, I'm pretty sure. I don't, actually, I don't remember. By the way, I tried to switch to an iPhone one time, and I almost jumped off a cliff. I, like I could, you know, I can't change. I'm not good at changing. But what I know is that my little 
smartphone. You remember this? My smartphone, it said on the screen. Do you remember what it said? Like the thing on the screen that you could never take off, just words that were always there. It said, your constant companion. And I can remember you and me laughing at that, Julie, like, yeah, right. And then turned out it was true. <laughs> like, we, it's just always moving down here. You know, hello, I'm still here. Have you looked at me lately? Hello, I got a message for you. And, you know, everything's chirping. That's what this is, is a temple where Americans go in order to find happiness. And most of us think I'm just one model away from happiness. So I bought the Samsung, the G Galaxy, I don't remember what it's called, S8, G8 or S8, whatever it is, Samsung's G, S8, whatever. I had a problem with this phone. I go back to the place where they sell it to me. It's like two or three months later. He says, well, your problem is you're using an S8. Now we're all using S10s. And I was thinking to myself, S10, that's only three months old. You've gone through the S8, the S8 Ultra, the S8 Notebook to the S9, the S9 Ultra, the S9 Notebook, and you're already on a 10, and only three months have passed. I get it. You know what they're doing? They just know that as soon as you buy this one, if they come out with a new number, you'll race down to buy that one because we bought into the lie that I'm just one purchase away from ultimate happiness. Okay, one other false prophet. By the way, I want to say this with sympathy. Maybe I'm having a little fun and mocking a little bit. But the thing is, the reason it works is because we really are hurting inside, that we really are dissatisfied. I just want you to know the S20, because that's what we're on right now, does not bring lasting satisfaction. You you know how I know that? Because I got one. It does not bring lasting satisfaction. Maybe the 21 will, but the 20 didn't. I know the 20 didn't. And it's got three cameras on the back, not just one, three. The eight had one. I'm just telling you, it's scratching the right edge. It's just the wrong scratch. The itch of, I know I was created to be satisfied. That's a legitimate concern. Just don't get your answer in the wrong place. Don't come up with a myth. Don't go to the wrong prophets. And this last one, I'm out of time, so I have to do this in quickly, your politics. Almost a candidate. Wouldn't that have been cool? All C's. Okay, can I just say this? Uh, so I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, but uh, Corey Trimble and I were talking, I don't remember when this was, probably in the heat of the presidential election. We were talking about what do you do with politics, and both of us were really stressing out over it. Again, I remember, tell, I told you this not long ago. Because if you don't mention politics, then it sure looks like you're ignoring a massive thing happening all around us. And how can you ignore that? If you do mention it, you know you're going to say it wrong when you're a preacher. You just are. And you're going, to, you're going to needlessly offend some people. Now, some people need to be offended, but you're probably going to needlessly do it. And so, a lot of us just are like really praying, Lord, if I have to, it's going to have to be your words. But I haven't said that. Let me just make a remark or two. First, let me say this. We are stewards of government, which means that we need to be involved in government. We just, we just do. We need to elect Christian politicians. I'm proud we have them. God is entrusting us with government. He holds us accountable for what our government does. So we don't ever want to wash our hands of that. Having said that, the way I read some Facebook posts, tweet, tw uh, Twitter accounts, the way I see some people screaming, I think some of you believe politics are going to save us. Surely not. I think some of you believe that critical theory, whether it's critical gender theory or critical race theory, is going to solve all our problems. I got bad news for you. It's not. 
And I think some of you might think that some form of nationalism, Christian nationalism, whatever it is, that that's all we need, that's going to save us. I got bad news for you. It's not. We are stewards of our government, but I want to make sure you understand something. If you want God's story, God's story is for you to get off your rear end and walk next door and make a disciple. That's how he changes the world. That's how he changes the world. This is what my friend, this is what my friend Corey said to me. He said, look, he said, what bugs me is in my church, he says, they're screaming at each other about politics, not just his church. He didn't even say it about his church. I'm not trying to make his church look bad. It's a great church. But he's just like, I can't stand to hear these people yelling about politics and they won't get off their lazy rear ends and walk next door and make a disciple. If you want to change the world, make a disciple. That's a whole lot more powerful than tweeting some yelling statement out. Like, what are, are we buying into the wrong story? The story that says, man, we have got to fight for what we believe politically. I care about politics. You know I do. But at the end of the day, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to, tomorrow I'm going to get up and I'm going to make disciples just like I did yesterday. And I can do that if Donald Trump is president and I can do that if Joe Biden's president. I can do that if Adolf Hitler is president. I can make disciples because that's what God called me to do. And it doesn't depend on what my government does. I'm going to do what God said. That's my story. Can't that be our story? Can't we care about government without making that our story? That is our solution to all of our problems. Can't the gospel be our solution? That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Y'all know how weird it is to be up here sometimes. You see, when you start with Giardia, it's just going to go, it's never going to work after that. Well, um, here's, here's my point. Here's my point. There are going to be a lot of prophetic voices in your head. There are. Listen to God. The problems that these prophetic voices are addressing are real problems. They're real problems. They're just false solutions. And God's got the right answer. Don't you trust him? When you were baptized, what was it you were saying except, Lord, from here out, I'm going to do it your way, even when it doesn't make sense. I'm going to do it your way. That's what you promised God. So let's do it. Let's stand up. We've got people who are willing to pray with you, coach you, disciple you, help you out in any way we can. They're at the back of this building or they're a click away online for you who are on the line camp, online campus. And we're going to do a song and the song is your chance to click or walk or do what you need to do. So Chamberlain, take it away.